okay, and welcome back to the Cinema Talk Movie Journal. Uh, first episode in a long time with me and Matt. Long time. Um, but uh, I guess real quick, I'm Ryan. I'm Matthew. And uh, you know us from all the other shows on the network. Um, we're on basically all of them at some point. Uh, and, you know, for a while there, this was kind of the only show on the feed. It was just kind of me and Matt sitting in my dorm room last year talking about some movies. But uh, basically, we've kind of upgraded since then. You know, we've gotten back to regular CTPs, back to regular Stop White What's, you know, all of the shows on the network. Um but this was an episode that we had been talking about doing for a long time. Uh, for three years now, we've done our best of the year lists, and we were like, well, we got to do a best of the decade list, right? And uh, we were like, well, we don't just want to g- jump right into it at the, at the turn of the new year so we can get some like movies that we hadn't seen onto the list, you know, do some more research, and that turned into eight months of ex- excuses for not doing <laughs> The best of the decade. Um, I think the first time we mentioned it, I think we mentioned in April that it was coming out at the end of April, and then it was yeah. the end of May, and then June, and so on and so forth, and now we end up here, uh, beginning of August. <laughs> I was going to say, we are recording this at on August 5th. I'm sure we it will go into August 6th. I'm sure this won't end yeah. um, during the day of August 5th, but... Yeah, so, I mean, as you saw, this is a part one, so this is a top 25 of the decade, so we're going to be doing 25 through 11 on this on this show, and then we'll release another 10 to 1 show very shortly. But, um, yeah, Matt, before we before we move into anything else, um, I know you don't have this, but I put together my bottom five of the decade, and this is kind of like, these aren't actually my bottom five of the decade, like, the, like if I actually had to, like, list them out. What I did for this was, like, I wanted to hit each category of a certain type of bad movie that I saw this this mm. past, um, this past decade. Um, so, I'm just gonna start off with my, my, my number five actually isn't my number five, but I just want to talk about it to get it out of the way, um, for right now. And that is The Tree of Life. Um, oh. this is, the category for this is, um, art movie that failed and fell straight on its face. Oof. Um... This was a movie that I watched for this podcast. So if we would have, if we wouldn't have, if we wouldn't have waited, uh, you, I could have just been like, "Oh, I'm sure this is a great movie." Um, but no, I just, I could not stand the the pretend, uh, pretense of this movie and the way that uh, Terrence Malick thought that he could tie a childhood experience from the 1950s to dinosaurs. It just, it didn't work for me, and all the cinematography being a low dolly in zoom with ending on a random object just it was like i get it it's about god you can you can be a little more subtle about it um so that movie just infuriated me um and not I the first sure time that. we'll be talking about it on this episode. i'm sure i'm sure because <laughs> i'm the only person on the planet that dislikes this movie um i know it's like that like you are in the extreme minority on this one. i know we talked about it but like on most critics best of the decade list this one I know. is i mean top three so this i was surprised to hear this opinion from you and uh, one day we i was shall surprised do a full too. episode about this either ctp or ctp movie journal yeah i was i was very surprised too i didn't expect to hate it and then as i was watching it it was one of those experiences like i don't know if you've ever had this while you were watching a critically acclaimed movie and like you're just like i what this really yeah like this is yeah it was just a weird experience mm-hmm. um my number four is a is an oddity that we just reviewed on the show and it's cats uh. um what to say about this movie uh go back and listen to our review 
it is nightmare fuel. It's terrifying. Again, I don't think this is actually one of the five worst movies of the decade, but I think it's the most uniquely bad, so I wanted to put it on this on this list. Um, you know, again, we just did a review on it, and we have a lot of movies to cover, so I'm going to move on. Um, my number three is another movie re- we've reviewed, and this is um, encompassing the bad DC movie, and that is Suicide Squad. Um, this is just so bad. Uh, David Ayer is a good filmmaker, and he just made a piece of studio garbage and literally the only thing redeeming this movie is Will Smith's decent performance and besides that it's just it's a slog man and I can't wait for James Gunn's remake um even if it's not officially a remake it's a remake um just so bad the next one is the failed huge CGI blockbuster uh coming in at number two and that is Transformers Age of Extinction uh, I saw this movie in the theaters with my dad back in, I think it was high school when it came out for us. And I also saw this in theaters. It, unfortunately. Um, so we were sitting there and watching the movie, and we thought, me and my dad looked at each other like, okay, this is the end, right? And there was another hour after that. This movie is almost three hours long, has like six different climaxes, and no story. And it was, it's so frustrating to watch. And at one point, I remember the, my, the most searing image in my brain from this movie is like Mark Wahlberg like falls out of a building or jumps out of a building or something and like lands on like a Bud Light truck that's fallen over yep. and just like cracks open a Bud Light with it towards the camera and just goes, ah, oh, that's good or something like that and tosses the Bud Light. Like it was like the movie stopped for a Bud Light action commercial. It was amazing kind of in some ways um that was one of those movies that like so it came out in 2014 and i was barely getting into movies at this point and and when you haven't really watched a lot of movies a lot of very good movies um i feel like you know basically any movie you watch is like an amazing really great cool experience yeah so seeing this movie i was like well that was sick and awesome and i of course have not revisited it because i really don't want to but the more i think about it i was like oh that was garbage I haven't thought about it since... I haven't seen it since then either. And my number one is another movie I haven't seen in a long time, but I feel like it deserves a spot on here, and it's the the shitty Happy Madison movie, which is uh, Adam Sandler's company, and that is Jack and Jill. Um, it's just... I can't even... If you don't know the story of it, Adam Sandler plays twins. And not just, like, two men. Like, he plays a woman and a man. And the main plot of the movie is Jill romancing Al Pacino, and Al Pacino being obsessed with Jill. Al Pacino, like actually, Al Pacino's in the movie. Yes. Whoa. And one of the main jokes of the movie is that Jill is a klutz, and she accidentally breaks his one Oscar. And he's like, "Oh, I'm sure you have a lot more of those." And he goes, "No, actually, just the one." That's the only thing I really remember from that movie, other than I think just Jill's character falling constantly and just being (laughs) ugh. I thought about putting Grown Ups 2 on this list at number one as well, which is a, which is a shit movie. Um, Adam Sandler makes some good movies, but he also makes some absolute hot garbage. So I, I reserve the number one spot for Jack and Jill. I don't know. Have you seen that movie, Matt? I, I have not, but it's it's pretty good. infamous for being really, really terrible. But yeah, it's funny. I mean, he's on both sides of the extremes with this decade. He's, I mean... Mm-hmm. I, We'll see if he pops up on the, any either of our lists, but he's certainly made some fantastic movies this decade. Yeah, no, for sure. He's uh, a weird actor. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but Matt, real quick, do we want to talk about um, 
our methodology in making the list and then maybe throw out some honorable mentions along with it. Yeah, let's do it. So uh, this list is interesting. It's very unique in its own way because, you know, obviously with any of our best of lists, you know, our best of uh, the year list, quality is the most important factor in in choosing the movie. And still that was, you know, one of the utmost uh, factor in a movie for this list. But I think more than any other list we've done, personal experience you know mm-hmm. how, how this Absolutely. movie has related to you over time your personal memories with this movie plays a gigantic role uh in, in its place on the list because if you go back you know on a letterbox in my individual ratings or even on you know where i place these movies on my best of the year list this will not be an accurate you know that will not line Same. up with that accurately Absolutely. there are a lot of even movies, with podcasts some- we've done Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are yeah. movies that hit my number two spot in you know best of 2017 or 18 that mm-hmm. will not make an appearance on this list Same. because I think you know a lot of those movies. The more you sit with it, the more you think about it. Even not necessarily or the less you think about it, the less you case. think about it. Yeah, and it's not that those movies. I don't think any of the movies that I put in my list have soured so much. That I think it's a terrible movie, but I think that you know there is a difference between a a good, well made movie that you know you watch it in the movies, and a week later we do a podcast on it, and I'm still thinking about it. And then there is a difference. There is a difference when when a movie is a movie for the ages, and mm. and those are the movies that I picked on on this list. And at, at first, you know, I was going. You know, going, okay, th- this is a better movie than this, and this is a better movie than that. But then I stopped and went, okay, when I look back on the 2010s, which movies am I going to think of? Am I going to think of this, or am I going to think of, you know, this technically well-made movie, or this movie that I just stuck with me because of this personal memory? So that's mm-hmm. how I tried to go in, the mentality I went into making this list. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we, we had very similar um, MOs going into making this list. Um, another thing that I really wanted to try to do was to get different kinds of movies, so I didn't want to put, like, I don't know. One of my honorable mentions is um, is The Artist, and I love that movie, but I feel like, you know, we got a lot of those kind of somewhat forgettable art movies that won an Oscar, and I kind of wanted to move away from that. I didn't put, um, I didn't put Gravity on my list mm-hmm. because, you know, Alfonso Cuaron's film is fantastic. It was my number one of 2013 when I was 14 years old when I watched it. But it just hasn't stuck with me, you know. That was that's what I was kind of going after. I was like, for the films also that I did put on here, which I watched for the first time recently, which there is quite a bit on here. I wanted to think about staying power. Like, will this movie, when I watch it in five years and I look back on this podcast, will I regret putting it on there? And even if it doesn't still hold that spot in my brain five, ten years from now, I wanted to, I want to understand and think that it was valid for me to do it at this time. So yeah, that was like, yeah, completely agree. That was kind of where I came from with this, and I also wanted to pick some movies maybe that some people haven't heard of or um, don't haven't heard a lot of on these kind of lists. Because um, I've listened to a ton of of podcasts and watched a ton of YouTube videos on this kind of topic and read a ton of articles, and I wanted to pick some movies that people haven't seen or haven't seen listed a lot, haven't seen held up a lot, which I think is important um, for these decade lists because you know you can hear the same. 10 movies over and over again as the best of the decade and you're like yeah I get it can you add anything new to this Um, which is kind of what I wanted to do as well so with that being said do you want to go into some honorable mentions Matt yes let's do it alright so I'm going to read um um I'm going to go I I guess it's Florida are you just doing your 32 through 25 or yeah I have I have 10 movies listed 
Okay, I'll just go 25 to 35, um, or 26, I guess, because we're doing top 25 of the decade. So the honorable mention starting at, you know, what would be my number 26 of the decade, uh, I've got the 2013 uh, Begin Again film. I'd Floyd, I don't know if you've seen this movie. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it now. Yes, so uh, this movie is directed by uh, the, the Irish guy. Uh, his name is John Carney. He's the director of mm. Once. This is essentially mm-hmm. the American remake of Once. I watched this before. I saw Once. I still think this is a better movie than Once, which is slightly unpopular opinion. But uh, basically, it's just a sort of music rom-com starring Mark Ruffalo, who's one of my favorite actors, and Kira Knightley as they she tries to become a successful artist in New York City and crosses paths with Mark Ruffalo, who is a kind of down on this luck movie producer. Um, I, it's, it's a movie that has stayed with me. I've seen it maybe seven times. It, it's beautiful. Wow. Haley Steinfeld gives, gives a great uh, performance in it as a daughter. Adam Levine pops up. Uh, I didn't know that about this movie, yeah. Yeah, in a role that kind of, like, incriminates him as he continues along in his music performance because he plays a pop star and he's kind of, you know, making fun of uh, the music industry. And then in his personal life, he started to emulate his movie character, which is a really funny course to do. Yeah, that's but, weird. You know, uh, like, like we just said, this is not, like... Technically, this is you know maybe not better than Roma, but for me, this is a movie that has, has always stayed with me, and I've seen it mm-hmm. many, many times. Uh, and then coming to number twenty-seven, I have Marriage Story. Talked about that movie a lot mm. already. You know, two amazing performances. Adam Driver, you'll see again on this list. Number twenty-eight, I've got the Scorsese two thousand sixteen movie Silence. Wow, which uh, not one that I didn't about. get around to. Yeah, beautiful movie. Adam Driver, once again in this one. Andrew Garfield, uh, a, a great portrait of faith, how we'd all hold on to faith in troubled times. Is faith necessary? Uh, one of the most moving endings uh, 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 that, that I'll talk about on this list. Number 29, I've got Villeneuve's movie Sicario. Great performance mm. by Emily Blunt. Deacon's amazing cinematography on this one. Just the editing, beautiful movie that has absolutely What of his most haunting? One of his most haunting, absolutely. Uh, number 30, I've got Little Women. 2019, mm. super recent movie. Movie that I love to death. Also I'm surprised that I didn't make it. Yeah, I know. I was too. It's it's one that I think the rewatchability factor is very high on, but it just I, it didn't make it onto my list. Mm, I'm uh, surprised by that. Number 31, a, a film I saw for this list, The Master, which mm. is a, a really great movie and one that I think has grown on me as time has gone on. It, it's I mean, Anderson's films are always very... Uh, very philosophical very they make you question the things that he is putting on screen and i think uh philip seymour hoffman the late great hoffman is, is amazing in this movie oh, and, and also think. joaquin phoenix uh who i think is his great performance I think probably his best performance uh number 32 i have the lighthouse uh robert eggers super okay. great filmmaker from this decade him and ari aster two just amazing horror icons of our time i think uh number 33 i have camera person Oh my gosh, great movie that I saw for this list. Um, directed by Kristen... Ooh, I'm blanking. But it's a great sort of a diary, I would almost describe it as. A personal journal of images. Um, the um, Kirsten Johnson is director, and she's a videographer. She does a lot of... Uh, the DP for a lot of documentaries and such, and it's basically just a collection of the images and the clips that have stuck with her over time. There's no through storyline. It's just 
this sort of diary of images and they're haunting even without the context for some of them i think it's beautiful absolutely amazing documentary which made me tear up multiple times number 34 i have the favorite yorgos lanthimos uh fantastic movie probably my favorite lanthimos movie number two being Dogtooth, which i just saw recently and then number 35 i have a movie that not a lot of people have seen or heard of uh it is the hunt starring mads mickelson totally <laughs> encourage you guys to check out this movie I think they got a foreign film nomination. Yes, it did. I believe so. Uh, but the director, I believe his name is Thomas Van, Ber- Van-, Van Berg, I believe. He's coming out with a new movie with Mad- Mads Mikkelsen this year. Uh, oh, a, yeah, I heard about yeah. that. A beautiful movie, a, sort of a wrong man, falsely accused type of film that, if you read the plot summary, could 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 come across as very, like, anti-Me Too or something because he's accused of sexual assault uh, against a minor, but it's not that way at all. It's not presented that way at all. It is about, you know, how rumors can spread through a small town and and the the toll that takes on one man. An amazing, amazing performance by Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, So I I believe, yep, that's uh, that's my honorable mentions for this decade, the ones that just couldn't quite make it in. Great. Well, uh, while you were doing that, I thought of another movie to add on. So I have 11. Um, these aren't in any particular order. I just kind of listed them out. Uh, my first honorable mention is Ex Machina, um, Alex Garland's fantastic science fiction film about um, really about how men treat women. Um, really, when you boil it down to what it's really saying, I think, which is an excellently haunting movie. How technology uh, treats women, too. Yeah, completely. Yeah, everything. Um, my next one is Inside Lewin Davis. Ultimately, I was deciding between this and a similar type of film, and I chose the other one. Great film by uh, the Coen brothers, who are somewhat hit or miss for me, but this one was definitely a hit. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, Next one is Blue Valentine. Um, I didn't put this one on the list because I had too many movies like it. Um, I I think I just went for a lot of really um, depressing romance movies in this decade, and I think I was just like, well, I just can't can't have six of them, you know? I gotta at least narrow it down somewhere, so Blue Valentine didn't quite make the cut. Uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, uh, as we'll get to, is my second favorite documentary from the from the decade. Really great documentary. I also have The Master here, which I think is PTA's best film of the decade. Very, very great film. As you said, performances all around. Um, some some scenes that will, will haunt you, for sure. Um, another one is Gravity, uh, as I had mentioned before. Really great uh, science, uh, science-based film, um, space-based film. Really, really excellent performance by Sandra Bullock. Um, another one that I thought would make this list but didn't was Birdman. Uh, I just didn't think about this movie as much as time went on. I think that was one of the main reasons I didn't put it on there. Um, but still, fantastic film by Ian Uritu, Um And definitely prefer that over The Revenant, which he won his back-to-back Best Director Oscars for. Agreed. Um, the Rover, um, very good movie about um, kind of what happens when natural resources run out and kind of... Um, those different things, and Rob Pattinson's fantastic in that movie. Uh, Boyhood is my next pick. Uh, I, I love Linklater, uh, what, the way Linklater plays with time in film, and I think that this is his most prevalent example of it, as you literally watch someone grow up over the course of the movie. And I think this movie, I think, hit me just right at the right time. I was like 16 years old when I watched it for the first time, and having some of these experiences that I was having put on film right in front of me in very, very similar situations. Um, was very impactful, but just ultimately didn't make it on the list. Uh, one I already mentioned is The Artist, a uh, fantastic film. I have very vivid memories of this movie, seeing it with my grandparents. 
um, who were the main reasons that got me into film. Um, I think I've mentioned that a few times on this podcast, but uh, seeing this movie in the theater was hugely impactful for me. I think it was kind of the first time that I really went into like the art house scene over just blockbusters, um, which was, I mean, everyone had, every film fan has that one movie that kind of intros them into um, art film. And I saw that when I was like 11 and it slowly, you know, has slowly taken over over time. But um, And then my last one is another John Carney movie. Um, I didn't have it on my honorable mentions and I should have. It's Sing Street. Uh, delightful film that I go back to very often. And I, I don't think I own it on Blu-ray, but I really want to. It's a great film. So those are my honorable mentions. Um, all of them fantastic movies, just didn't quite, you know, you only have 25 spots. So Yeah. But yes, enough dawdling around. Let us get to the meat of this podcast, yes. the, the segment that you've been waiting for, waiting for for eight months, uh, the top 25 of the decade. Uh, Floyd, if you want to start us off with your tw- number 25 pick. Alrighty. So my number 25 pick... Um, it's a film that I, I hope that many of you haven't seen, so I can at least turn you on to one movie here that you've never heard of before. But maybe some of you good film connoisseurs will know Long Day's Journey Into Night, uh, which is a film that I had to watch recently for a film class. Um, it's a Chinese experimental film. It's on the Criterion ch- channel right now, or at least it was when I did these notes, so go and watch it right now. Um, the first hour of the film has some narrative, um, but really it's just kind of set up for imagery that comes later in the film for the last hour. Um, the last 59 minutes of this film is shot to look like one continuous shot. And it, it is cl- the closest thing I've ever seen put on film that actually feels like a dream. I, I can't think of a movie that really puts you in the feeling that you are dreaming because there are things that come back, um from re- from like the quote unquote real life part before he falls asleep um that like you see people but they don't quite have the same context that you do in real life or the geography of everything going on doesn't quite make sense and then things will come in and out of the the picture uh, of the quote unquote story of your dream without ever really making sense in that way and i i i think that this film is the the only thing like close maybe the only thing close to it is David Lynch but David Lynch still it, it's David Lynch is different than this film this film actually I think is going for what it's like to dream and I think it actually accomplished it so go check out Long Day's Journey in Tonight um it is a it is a singular experience there's not really many other films like it that's awesome yeah not a movie I've seen but one I've been wanting to along with uh, Khalil Blues which I believe is that director's other work mm. um, but yeah oh, that's awesome I, I'm glad Bygone I think is his name here. or something like that Begone. yeah something like that but yeah definitely a smaller I film should, but I if should you know this it, I will, I will look it up and correct the the wrong of not having his name correct <laughs> off the top of my head give me one second so go ahead with your 25 and after yes. your 25 I'll let you know so uh, my number 25 uh, is going to be a movie that's a lot more recognizable, but it is uh, Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel from 2014. Hmm. Uh, this is not my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Fantastic Mr. Fox takes that slot, but that's from 2009. But if that would have been in this decade, that would have snagged the top five slot because I love that movie to death. But Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, is a fantastic movie. I think Wes Anderson is a very iconic director of our times, of these 2010s and even before that. I think uh, his style is one that is going to be imitated in the future, definitely parodied. All already has been parodied and imitated. I think the Grand Budapest is kind of the, uh, in some senses, the perfect culmination of his, of his career because uh, it was some of his movies. I do understand the criticisms of you know it just being 
too heavily stylized and too too whimsical, right? Um, but for this movie, I think it's the perfect blend of that super uh, hoity-toity, whimsical, colorful, distinctive color palette style and a really beautiful story with really vivid and fleshed out characters. I'm really invested in the storyline of this movie. I think Ralph Fiennes gives one of his greatest performances. Um, you know, as this idiosyncratic, offbeat uh, hotel director. And, and I love any movies particularly that kind of look back on a certain place or a certain person as, as a character is telling a story. And I love how we kind of move through the different layers in this film, where, you know, even when you reach the end and the movie completely zooms out of these three layers, you almost forget how, you know, how, how deep into the movie you were because you're so in intrigued by it. Uh, I, I think this is a fantastic Wes Anderson movie. You know, like I said, it's a whimsical, but it's also a movie that will stick with you, uh, not just because of the visuals, but because of the characters. Yeah, I saw this movie back when it came out, and I don't remember it very well, to be honest. Um, I, I'm a little bit of a Wes Anderson skeptic. Um, I, I need to see more of his films, but I do really like um, Rushmore, which was his second feature, which is a great film. Um, but yeah, no, I, I can't really comment on this because I don't remember it too well. Um, but moving on to my number 24 is actually a late-minute audible. Um, I did have the artist in this slot, and I moved it out for instead 1917. Uh, which is a film that I just talked about on my best of 2019. It's a, I think it's a fantastic war film, and I think it's the only war film on my top 25. Um, it, Deacon cinematography is the standout, as we've said before. Uh, the two lead performances really anchor down the movie, and I think a way that is, it's not, it, these aren't flashy performances, but they they get the job done and they hold the movie down. Sam Mendes obviously has such care for this material um and it's it's a movie that has stuck with me and i think that's an important thing you know we're eight months removed from having this movie come out we're eight months removed from doing this uh for me covering this on my top 25 or top 20 of the year um to the point where i think this is you know a movie that i feel confident putting on this list and yeah i absolutely love it i you know it, it won a couple oscars you know it it is it is in the culture now, so you know 1917, and I I love it, and I had to put it on this list. Yeah, certainly a great movie, a movie that you and me saw in theaters together and cried together. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Yes, absolutely. for me that is yes, for me that is one of those movies that um, has lessened over time, and I would put it into the good technical movie, but not a movie for the ages for me personally. But um, Fair moving enough. into my number 24, I've got a film that I'm sure Floyd will also have. It is Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street from 2013. Mm. I think, we'll see. We'll see if it comes up. Oh, we'll see. Uh, this is a movie I watched recently just uh, just for this for this podcast. It was a film that I started to watch downstairs in my family room on my TV. And I was like, well, you know what? maybe this isn't the best movie to be played at full volume in the, in the yeah. middle of my house. So <laughs> quickly moved to a laptop setting. But a fantastic movie. And even though it's one that you know takes place in, in, the, in the late 80s and 90s, I think it, it the style of the movie and looking at it in terms of uh, Scorsese's evolution as a director kind of does uh, define some of the excess and uh, fast-paced nature of the 2010s, which I think is uh, a really important characteristic of this time. DiCaprio, you know, once again giving in a fantastic performance as a 
drug-addled, uh, compulsive liar maniac that, for the most of the movie, uh, you, you know, you recognize all these bad decisions that you're making, but Scorsese's direction is so compelling that you basically go along with everything. But I think uh, what a lot of people miss from this movie is basically the last hour, the last third or so, mm-hmm. when the film takes a twist and it's no longer just a... Um, you know, bright colors, crazy things happening. It's, it quickly becomes a garish and grotesque portrayal of someone who has no control over his life. And it, at the end, a, a portrait of American excess and how easy it is to kind of uh, uh, get hooked on that lie. Get lost in it, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree with basically everything you just said. The Wolf of Wall Street, great film. Uh, so moving on to my 23... Uh, is a film that is one of those that I have talked about um, on a top 20 of the year, but it wasn't as high as to warrant a top you know, 25 spot. But it, this is a movie that's grown on me, and it's uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, this movie makes me well up even just thinking about it, honestly. James Baldwin's um, story mixed with Barry Jenkins' direction. Uh, I do think that this is the superior film to Moonlight, um, not to say that Moonlight isn't a fantastic movie in its own right, which should have been on my honorable mentions list. Moonlight's a great film. But, you know, the, the, the production design, the cinematography, the way that the color of this movie was so beautiful, um, all these, like, warm hues, but also paired with some some really stark colors. I, I just think it's, it's one of the best-looking films of the decade. Um, I'm looking at, actually, right behind me, one of the, one of the best... Parts of this uh, movie was the Nicholas Bertel score, which I have a mm. signed copy of um, a CD of it. I'm looking right at it right now in, in the corner of my desk, and it's, the the score is just beautiful in this film. Uh, the the two lead performances are fantastic, you know. Um, just all around, you know, the the screaming scene um, when. I forget the actor's name, which I feel bad. I should have done more research. I should have refreshed myself a little bit more on the uh, on the films that I was talking about here today. Uh, Stephen James, uh, when he is out in the middle of the street after the him and Kiki Lane buy their their first apartment, and they, he just screams with this joy um, that is just so palpable, and you can feel it coming off the screen. But also knowing with the framing device of the film, knowing what happens to him, it it feels almost so melancholic, and it is. It is a beautiful portrayal of what is lost with police and systematic racism and the way that it can just eat people's lives away. Um, and I think it's I think I've thought about this movie and do the right thing the most since uh, the George Floyd murder and since um, racism has become the topic that it should have always been in our in our society in American society and it it has stuck with with me a lot. Um, and God bless James Baldwin. He's great. Yeah, that was a movie I saw by myself in theaters. Really moving experience. Um, I think Jenkins. There have been a lot of comparisons of Barry Jenkins to uh, Brian De Palma and their, and their use of close-ups. And I think both of them mm. are really masters of it. And both Jenkins has this way of just capturing uh, just such a myriad of emotions on a human face just through one shot. And I think it's a beautiful movie, Did, for sure. Yeah, the way that he just has his actors look at the camera mm-hmm. in just such an amazing way. Another scene I forgot to mention, um, a scene that I think is very significant and if Beale Street could talk, is the, actually the sex scene because it's not, you know, crude. It's mm-hmm. more 
you know, sensual and loving, which you don't see very often in film. And, you know, props to Barry Jenkins for not going the easy route on that. So, Yeah, no, completely agree with you. Uh, moving into my number 23, a smaller movie, one that I've talked about on my uh, best of 2017 list, uh, with the film uh, Koganada's uh, directorial debut, Columbus. Oh, man, this is a movie that both me and Floyd love. I remember I told Floyd, you have to watch this movie. You have to watch this before we did the list. And then he did, and I was so thrilled to hear that he liked it. Uh, I think I loved it. A, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, you know, to quote David Lynch, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So beautiful. I think we'll both be sounding like David Lynch by the end of this movie, by, or then yes. it's a podcast by how much we say that word. But I, I think it's a stunning directorial debut from Koganata, who, who was a man who basically just made film essays online, these very well-edited and beautiful film essays, but it, this was really his first foray into something of this nature. And it's great because he's got uh, John Cho, uh, who's fantastic, uh, as well as Haley... Um, Haley Lou Richardson. Haley Lou Richardson, who's great in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's a movie that, uh, like like another film I'll talk about on this list, finds the poetry in images, finds the poetry in architecture, which I don't think I've ever seen a movie yeah. that made made me think about architecture this much. And, and not even in, in their conversations and the kind of like philosophical way they go about talking about it, but just has how space how it plays a role in their relationship, the framing devices that they use. You know, one of the first scenes, and it's a scene that I'm going to be playing is, uh, you know, kind of when they first begin to have a conversation, uh, they're walking around this building, and there's a fence in between them, and they're smoking. I think it's really interesting how he frames this movie. Um, I, I think it's it's also kind of a, an accurate movie. I'd like to, I, I should rewatch it now that uh, I'm in college, just because it is kind of a, a portrait of a woman post-college, struggling to find her purpose in life. And it's not that she finds her purpose in this man but uh he's someone that they both draw inspiration from as he is someone who is recovering from grief uh and from the death of his father so a really great movie uh i'm gonna roll the clip from that one now as i said uh, just a clip of them having a really well-written uh conversation so enjoy this yeah Actually, I'll take one if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So you speak English. You don't think Asians can speak English? Yeah, of course. No, yeah. I was just, I heard you speaking this long and I... Sorry, I'm being a jerk. You offered me a cigarette and I'm giving you a hard time. I didn't mean to. I know what you meant. Sorry, I'm having a rough day. For a year? I saw you at the hospital. You did? Yeah, it was early in the morning. Sorry, I don't remember. Are you? I don't want this to sound offensive if you're um, not, but are you related to Jay Young Lee? I am. I'm his son. How did you know that? I was planning to go to his talk. Ah. It's canceled, obviously. We heard what happened. Is he okay? He's uh, stable. 
Not enough to put on a plane. Still unconscious. I'm really sorry. It's okay. My name's Casey. It's actually Cassandra, but everyone calls me Casey. Jin. Jim? Jin. With an N. Got it. Yep, so you just heard that clip there from Columbus. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Floyd, do you have any comments on this one? Yeah, this is one that didn't make my list, unfortunately. But, it, it I mean, don't let that fool you. I love this movie. It's a fantastic film. And I think one of the one of the most interesting things about this film, as, as you touched on, was the relationship between John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson's characters. And it, it's such a loving relationship in, in almost the most platonic way possible. And it's so interesting to see because part 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 of the times you're like, oh, they're just they have this amazing chemistry, you know. You kind of want them to be together, and then you kind of realize there's like a twenty year age gap, and that's kind of you know that's fine, but you know, not ideal. And then there are some times where it's like brother and sister, and there's sometimes that's father and father and daughter, and you can just kind of realize that these two just have a beautiful connection. And I think that's really what carries the film for me, even more than the beautiful cinematography and the script. I think it's just mainly their chemistry that really really knocked me on my on my ass when the first time I saw it. Absolutely great film. Um, so I talked about James Baldwin with my number 23, and I'm going to keep that going with my number 22, and that is the best documentary of the decade, which is I Am Not Your Negro. Um, I saw this for the first time a couple months ago, again, with um, the murder of George Floyd. Um, as all white people should do as a white person, I was like, okay, I feel like I need to educate myself a little uh, a little more than I have before, so I watched this documentary. It was free on Amazon Prime, I believe. Um, and, and if you don't know, um, this documentary basically follows a manuscript of one of James Baldwin's last books that he never finished, and it was a, it was more of a memoir um, on his time in America as a black man, um, but it also chronicles three men who were huge in the civil rights movement, which were Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr., all of which were murdered by the American people for speaking out, and uh, this film was narrated by Samuel L. Jackson, who is another, you know, black icon. And just to have all three of these five, or all three, all five of these men um, come together in, in a very interesting way. The, the story mainly follows the three civil rights leaders, but also goes adjacent with James Baldwin, and then obviously all of it's tied together by Samuel L. Jackson. Um, I don't know. James Baldwin knew what he was talking about, man. Uh, I, I feel like this film kind of flew under the radar for a while um and then finally I, I did see some people watching this movie back in you know june july time and i'm glad that they did you know uh baldwin carries this movie so well even though it, it i mean it was made from a manuscript of him posthumously but you can feel his presence throughout the entire documentary even though he is never you know actually directly involved involved with the film um I mean, he was an immensely talented writer, but I think beyond that, he was just, like, a real person, if you know what I'm saying. Like, he just, it was one of those experiences watching a film that I feel like I really got the feel of a person, like, what it would be like to be with him. And he was just such an intelligent, impressive person, um, you know. But it, it's a great doc about racism in this country. It's as relevant as ever. Double feature this with Do the Right Thing. Or if Beale Street could talk and you'll have an amazing experience. And uh, one of the main 
uh, archive clips that they had in this film uh, was this speech by James Baldwin that I'm actually going to play for you right now. Uh, this is an archive clip, but also um, heavily featured in the film. So enjoy this clip of the great James Baldwin. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the Negro in this country, the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there is no difference in the north and the south. There's just a, no, a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But, that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not the nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. Okay, you heard that speech there from the late, great James Baldwin in I Am Not Your Negro, my number 22 film of the decade, and my number one documentary of the decade. So, um, Matt, have you had any experience with this film? I, I need to watch this movie. Um, I, I, I believe it might still be free on Amazon Prime. I think but it may be. I even remember when it came out, it was playing in some of the local independent theaters around here. It's one that I've been meaning to watch. Um yeah, no, de- definitely one that's on my list. And after hearing you talk about it even more, I, I, I makes me want to watch it even more. Great. But yeah, moving into my number twenty-two of the decade, we've got uh, a film from a director that we're talking to, uh, talking about uh, right mm. now on CTP. Uh, it is 2014's Gone Girl by mm. uh, directed by David Fincher. Uh, this is a movie that for sure uh, grew on me over time. There are some movies that. Uh, for some reason or another, right? Maybe it's because of some sort of preconceived notion that I had going in, some sort of expectation, uh, implicit or otherwise. You know, I, I I I leave the movie feeling a little overwhelmed, confused, not sure how to feel. Um, this one, I also kind of feel the same way about The Graduate, but that one's also improved my head over time. Um, this was a movie that kind of just uh, threw me off my feet because the other Fincher movies I had seen up until this point were just, you know, very bleak films. So we're talking Seven, we're talking Zodiac, uh, you know, films we're about to talk about on CTP. This one, is, it, it has that same trademark Fincher nihilism, but it approaches it from a very different sense. I think this film is hilarious at times. And it was almost like I wasn't sure if I should laugh when I first saw the movie because I was like, this is a Fincher movie. This is supposed to be really, really dark and serious. But I think there are moments when, that are just, very intentionally funny and he finds the uh, very dark comedy in some of these uh, tragic and disturbing moments but I think uh, by and large this is a a great movie, a great portrait at um, some of our 
uh, uh, completely irrational fears about marriage, about connection, about uh, you know having to spend your life with with another person, and he kind of exaggerates that in, into a very uh, violent plot at times. A movie that takes twists and turns that you know leaves you not sure how to feel about this Rosamund Pike character, who's a gives a just absolutely career defining performance in this movie. Uh, and, and again, the score in this film Fincher's longtime collaboration with the Nine Inch Nails, Trent Rasner, and Atticus Ross, an amazing score, pulse pounding score. And uh, I, I was reading, um, uh, kind of researching on this movie, and apparently when David Fincher was looking to cast uh, the main the main role of Nick Dunn, he was he was just looking up actors on the internet, and he came across a photo of Ben Affleck smiling, and he was like, yes. That is the person I need. Wow. If, you've, if you've seen the movie, you know there's this very you know iconic scene where uh, uh, Ben Affleck's character flashes a sort of smile, which lands him in some hot water in the tabloids and whatnot. Uh, a fantastic movie. I'm going to play a clip from this one. I'm going to play the very famous Cool Girl clip. Um, so I guess if, if you haven't seen the movie, this is going to be a spoiler-filled clip, so you might want to avoid this one and skip, skip a minute ahead or so. But I'm going to roll that clip now. Then Nick will die too. Nick and Amy will be gone, but then we never really existed. Nick loved a girl I was pretending to be. Cool girl. Men always use that, don't they, as their defining compliment. She's a cool girl. Cool girl is hot. Cool girl is game. Cool girl is fun. Cool girl never gets angry at her man. She only smiles in a chagrin, loving manner and then presents her mouth for fucking. She likes what he likes, so evidently, he's a vinyl hipster who loves fetish manga. If he likes girls gone wild, she's a mall babe who talks football and endures buffalo wings at Hooters. When I met Nick Dunn, I knew he wanted cool girl. And for him, I'll admit, I was willing to try. I wax strip my pussy raw. I drank canned beer watching Adam Sandler movies. I ate cold pizza and remained a size two. I blew him semi-regularly. I lived in the moment. I was fucking game. I can't say I didn't enjoy some of it. Nick teased out in me things I didn't know existed. A lightness, a humor, an ease. But I made him smarter, sharper. I inspired him to rise to my level. I forged the man of my dreams. We were happy pretending to be other people. We were the happiest couple we knew. And what's the point of being together if you're not the happiest? But Nick got lazy. He became someone I did not agree to marry. He actually expected me to love him unconditionally. Then he dragged me, penniless, to the navel of this great country and found himself a newer, younger, bouncier, cool girl. You think I'd let him destroy me and end up happier than ever? No fucking way. He doesn't get to win. Yep, so you just heard that clip from Gone Girl that is the uh, famous cool girl monologue from Rosamund Pike. An amazing scene. It really marks an interesting transition in the film uh, in tone as to where the movie is going to go. Absolutely. It's a, it's a really, really good film. Uh, not one of my like top tier Fincher films, but a, a really great film nonetheless. And I think you hit on something really important there. Like so many great movies, it is so dependent on the two leads and Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck. Even though they aren't on screen 
too much together, probably only for like 20 minutes of the film and some flashbacks. Um, it, it really, you feel this relationship between the two. And I think this is kind of the movie that proves that Ben Affleck is more than just, you know, a pretty face. Like, he is genuinely, and they kind of use that in this movie, like, that this guy is considered, you know, just, you know, an attractive guy that is just kind of bland in real life, but I think he was actually fantastic in this film, and also really good in a movie that came out this year called The Way Back, which I feel like some people know about because it was out during the shutdown and kind of went to streaming then. Good film that you should watch, but yeah, no, I agree. Gone Girl, great film. Coming in at number 21 um, is one of those one of those movies that we were talking about that is, uh, you know, kind of unique to us, kind of hit us at the right time, uh, but also it, I think, is probably my top comedy of the top 25, so I'm going to use a clip from the trailer to intro this movie, and we'll see whether or not you know what it is by the time I get back. And we're back. Just like the five musketeers. Three musketeers, isn't it? Well, nobody knows how many there were, really, do they? You know that the three musketeers is a fiction, right? Written by Alexander Dumas. A lot of people are saying that about the Bible these days. What, that it was written by Alexander Dumas? <laughs> Don't be daft, Steve. It was written by Jesus. We were there, yeah? Let's do this! They haven't seen each other in 20 years. I'm free to do what I want. But tonight, they're returning to their hometown to finish the ultimate pub crawl. This is our chance to finally conquer the Golden Mile. 12 pubs, 12 pints. And this time, they're going to make it to the last pub, the world's end. Let's go! So yes, you heard there the trailer for Edgar Wright's The World's End, uh, which managed to make it into my top 25. Um... No one talked about this movie at the best of the decade time, although it is, I think, the best Edgar Wright movie that I've seen, and is probably, you know, it, it, I think it's the best of the Cornetto trilogy, which is Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. Um, Shaun of the Dead is right there. Those two movies are the best. I think Hot Fuzz is, while still a really good movie, just slightly lower, but, you know, it, it, this movie is hysterical. It's very British. Um... It is basically, if you don't know the plot of it, um, Simon Plague plays a guy who is, you know, leaving s some establishment that you aren't quite sure of at the beginning. Um, some sort of either homeless shelter, um, Alcoholic Anonymous is kind of what you're led to believe. Um, and he, he goes back to his town, hometown of Newton Haven, with his other four best friends from high school where they did this pub crawl, and they didn't get to finish this pub crawl, a huge thing in this town where they have, like, 12 pubs that you have to go to and have a pint at each, and they didn't get to finish the first time around, and then, you know, this is 20 years later, they're all adults now, you know, they're 40, over 40, and um, he wants to kind of rekindle that whole thing, and he manages to, like, swindle his old high school friends who he hasn't talked to for a long time to go back to this town, and that's the basic setup of the film, um, but like Edgar Wright does with so many of his movies... The comedy of this movie is kind of really masking a story of pain and suffering of someone who is just kind of in the doldrums of life. It's it's a super relatable film in the end, um, and, and, and it's a, a movie that makes me afraid to be Gary when I'm 40 years old, and I think that was one of the things that kind of had me keep coming back to it, on top of the fact that it's just a hilarious comedy. Um... And I love the messaging of the ending. Um, I'm not going to talk about anything beyond just them going back to the to the pub 
Um, which, by the way, the last pub at the, of the crawl is the World's End, which is where they get the title from. But there is a, there is a very big plot re- revelation that I don't want to talk about in case you don't know what it is. But um, yeah, it's it's a it's a wacky it's a wacky comedy. But you know, there's a lot of depth to it in terms of you know both emotion and the filmmaking craft. Which, if you've ever seen an Edgar Wright movie, you know what I'm talking about in terms of an Edgar Wright movie visually um, being just so all all over the place, but at the same time so kinetic. Um, yeah, D- D- Edgar Wright's The World's End is my number 21. Awesome. Yeah, not a movie I've seen, but one I've definitely been recommended to by you and others multiple, multiple times. I will hold my thoughts on Edgar Wright because you will hear about him very, very soon. Okay. All right, so moving into my number 21 is a film that we talked about on CDP, again, very recently. And it was a film that initially was not going to be on my t- best of the decade. I just, you know, off the top of my head, it was like, no, that, that won't make it on. But after talking about it on CTP, after rewatching it for that episode uh, and realizing how damn moved I am by this movie, Perks of Being a Wallflower yeah. is my number 21 pick. Talk about a movie that grows with you over time, as I talked about in that episode um, it, it was a film that was kind of a staple of, I think, my senior year with my friend group. It was one that we would watch a lot and talk about a lot. Um, yeah, you know, it, that iconic scene where they play Come on Eileen uh, during the school dance. They played Come on Eileen at my prom, my senior prom, and it was this amazing moment with all my friends where, you know, it, it just a brilliant moment that is seared into my head. And now moving into college, we talked about this before, but both me and Floyd go to college in the city of Pittsburgh. So adding even more relevance there, that hero's tunnel scene moves me to tears. Not only does it make me think of the connections of friendships and of friendships that I had in high school that last and, you know, brought me out of my shell, maybe. Uh, it makes me think of this city that I now think of as a second home. Um, you know, and it made me think of moving to college in my freshman year. And it's, it's, it's a deeply emotional experience. It's one of those movies that I can't watch that often just because it really does. It rocks me to my core big time. Logan Lerman, uh, uh, I almost said Patrick Wilson there for some reason, (laughs) (laughs) who is not not in this movie, uh, Ezra Miller, uh, fantastic performances as well as emma watson um it's i'm a sucker for coming of age movies and you'll see more of them on this list and this is certainly one of the best yeah absolutely um go back and listen to that review um for our full thoughts we did a whole almost two-hour podcast on this little independent movie uh, it's beautiful i love it um coming in number 20 is a film that i'm assuming is probably in your top five or top ten um you know david lynch says a lot um I love ideas, and I feel like Christopher Nolan says the same thing a lot, and that's because my number 20 is Inception. Um, I, I rewatched this movie, skeptical that it would make my top 25, and while I do have problems with it, almost every line is exposition in terms of having to explain this world and this concept. Um, it, it almost has to be because this story is so complex. Um, so I, I kind of forgave it of the, the exposition heaviness um, because this movie is just thrilling. Like, I, I, I can't put into words how fr- thrilling this film is. It is so creative in the screenplay and the direction, the visual effects. Um, this is a movie not like how it actually is, what it's actually like to dream. You know that if you've seen Inception. That's not what dreaming's like at all. Um, but it, it kind of it gives Nolan the excuse to play around with reality. And I think that is one of the main things that looks so interesting about Tenet, is that he's kind of doing that again. Um, if we ever get to actually see that movie. Mm. Uh, but 
to pull us back into reality a little bit, but I, I love the way the movie's edited. Um, I think it is... It, this movie, in the way that the different dreams go into a dream, shows you how well our brain is wired to understand what a movie's putting in front of us. Because there are these set pieces that are so seemingly different and supposed to be happening at the same time but are in completely different spaces and completely different stories and they're intercut all the all the time especially mm-hmm. that's that sequence where um joseph gordon levitt you know is 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 fighting someone in a hallway while a car is falling off a bridge but at the same time almost james bond-esque movie is happening on another layer with you know this this snowy mountain it's just the way that everything kind of just makes sense to my brain through all of that, through the editing, really shows you what this medium can do. And, and this is, I think, a movie that I put on here because of what it does with the filmmaking medium. And Christopher Nolan is such a innovative filmmaker. Um, and I think that's the reason why this movie made it onto my list over his other three films of this decade, all of which I like to some extent. But definitely this and Dunkirk were probably the two movies that I thought about the most for Christopher Nolan. I have only seen Interstellar once, so I should say that, but... Yeah, so Christopher Nolan's Inception is my number 20 of the year. Or decade, not the year. Yeah, you know how I feel about this movie. Amazing movie. I'm going to be talking about it later, so we'll move on. But, okay, so I said I'll be talking about Edgar Wright very soon. Well, here we are. My number 20 pick of the best of the decade is Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Uh, his movie from 2010. Uh, jumping back to the, the, the first year of the decade there. This is one of those back movies to back where... Yeah, one of those movies where you talk about uh, the rewatchability factor of a movie. Damn it, I've seen this movie so many times I never grow tired of it. And it was only a movie that I uh, saw for the first time maybe two years ago. And I just have not stopped thinking about or loving it ever since. Um, I I mean, I, I, I love Edgar Wright's signature breakneck speed editing pace we're jumping around everywhere but these snappy lines of dialogue that just go back and forth and back and forth and i think that he uses uh the graphic novel medium from which the story originated to such cool effect here um i i think this is a movie that easily could have been really goofy maybe too nerdy too silly but i i am absolutely in love with everything this movie does i think the the fight sequences where we get these kind of mortal combat esque uh, uh, throwdowns paired with some really funny music it, 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 just absolutely thrilling to watch above that I totally buy into the Michael Sarah and uh, a, a, amazing Mary Elizabeth Winstead performances in these movies as well as, well as just of course a great uh, handful of other cast members like Aubrey Plaza and Anna Kendrick uh, I, I think this is a delightful movie. I also think that it is one that is very specific to the 2010s. It, it is very much so a movie that is obsessed with video game culture, with technology, uh, with very digitized filmmaking. So, you know, it, it's one that I think would be a very different experience if you're watching this and you're, say, 60, you know what I mean? And you're used to films from another time period. So I, I, I like this, that this one is on the list because I think it definitely defines this decade very well. And also a little bit of sidebar, but... Uh, the the 10-year anniversary of this movie was very recently, and Josh Gad on his YouTube channel did a very nice reunion of the whole cast over Zoom, and it's uh, Edgar Wright and the screenwriter, and Chris Evans, and all the actors and actresses all came together and read some of the scenes together. Very delightful to watch. Uh, yeah, this is one of my badges of shame of a film that I haven't seen. Um, I don't know how I grew up in the 2010s and just managed to miss Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, but somehow I did it. 
and I've only seen the poster of you know him rocking out on that guitar or whatever, and yep. seen a couple images here or there, and I know I know the whole evil exes type thing, um, but yeah, no, I have to admit that this is this is one I haven't seen, um, but yeah, I take your word for it. I love Edgar Wright's movies as obvious because of my number twenty one pick, but um. Alright, so here we are, number 19. This is a big one, so I'm gonna let a clip from it introduce it. heard there the best piece of blockbuster cinema this decade the best piece of blockbuster cinema since the dark knight and that is ryan johnson's star wars the last jedi uh this movie is an excuse enough for the disney purchase honestly this and the clone wars series finale um are the two best things they've made go back and listen to our review for our full thoughts back in 2018 i believe over two years ago at this point most of my opinions still hold on that. I have even softened on some of my critiques even more, including the Canto Bite stuff in Rose. Uh, I no longer think that she is the worst Star Wars character. I think that was a little bit of an overreaction. Um, the themes of this movie, I think, are so so poignant. I think it proves Ryan Johnson as a screenwriter and a filmmaker. The idea of letting go, that things don't always go well after a happy ending... Um, the way that it builds on force abilities um, in a very distinct way, and Ryan Johnson's explanation of the force through Luke at the one point with Rey is just so beautiful. Um, also, Luke's sacrifice at the end of the film brings me to tears no matter what. Um, it's just such a beautiful moment. Um, and the basic idea that anyone can do good and that you don't have to be special quote-unquote special, it'd be like this chosen person to, to do good with what you have. Um, and the fact that everything in this film gets shit on by J.J. Abrams' atrocious The Rise of Skywalker makes me love it even more. Um, it makes me hate that movie even more the more I think about it. Um, and, and to the point where I posited in The Rise of Skywalker uh, discussion that we had that it was the worst of the of the the main theatrical films, and I got some pushback on that, but I feel like some people are starting to like really come over to that side. I feel like there was some positive buzz for Rise of Skywalker when it came out, just because it was a new Star Wars movie, and I think people have realized over the last eight months just how terrible of a film that is. Um, the acting is fantastic in this film. Best performances of the series by Adam Driver and Mark Hamill, respectively. 
Um, I love that this movie is really about Kylo Ren, Rey, and Luke in the end, and how these three characters interact. Um, it's just, it, it is, I think it's, I'll put it this way, it's not my favorite Star Wars movie, but I think it's the best Star Wars film, if you know what I'm saying. Like, do you mm-hmm. kind of get what I'm saying there? Like, it's not, it's not my favorite. I still think I would put Star Wars and Empire, I think it is still in my third slot in terms of my favorite Star Wars movies, but I think it's the best film of the, of the series, and, um, yeah, I'm just, I, if anything else, I'm glad that the Disney purchase happened so that we got this, fuck yeah, Ryan Johnson, I love you. Yeah, you know, if you've heard any of the other Star Wars episodes on this network, you know you know my thoughts on this opinion, you know how divisive of an episode this was, this three-hour episode or whatever was it. I really hate this movie. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a film that just uh, never quite gelled for me <laughs> from the very first viewing. Yep. I will say it is a film that I think I've come to appreciate a little bit more after watching Rise of Skywalker. You don't have to like it, just appreciate it. Yes, yes, there, there you go, because I, I guess I, I have more respect for what Ryan Johnson did, I guess I'd say, after seeing the absolute bullshit that J.J. Abrams Oh, watched. my God, I'm so mad but, about uh, it still. But real I, quick, I, before, you, uh, before you move on to your next pick, I did forget that I had one other clip that I would like to play. This is my favorite clip from the film, so a little exchange, or not a little exchange, a big exchange between Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley as... Um, a, a, the the classic line that Matt hates. It's time to let old things old things die. So enjoy. Ben? It's time to let old things die. Snoke, Skywalker, the Sith, the Jedi, the Rebels. Let it all die. Ray, I want you to join me. We can rule together and bring a new order to the galaxy. Don't do this, Ben. Please don't go this way. No, no, you're still holding on! Let go! Do you want to know the truth about your parents? Or have you always known? Are you just hidden it away? You know the truth. Say it. Say it. They were nobody. They were filthy junk traders who sold you off for drinking money. <laughs> the dead in a pauper's grave in the Jakku Desert. You have no place in this story. You come from nothing. You're nothing. But not to me. And we are back from yet another clip from my number 19 pick, Star Wars The Last Jedi. So, uh... Matt, if you if you have anything else to say on the last Jedi, go ahead. But if not, go ahead to your number nineteen film. Yeah, you know, I basically I've said my piece on this film in many episodes, but basically not a fan of it. But moving on to my number nineteen pick, a film you are a fan of. Yes, a film I am a massive fan of. Uh, one that I don't think I've seen crack any any critics' best of the decade list, but for me, it is one of the best. It is Paddington. Uh, from mm. 2014. I'm surprised movie... this is 19. The way you were talking about, it. I thought it'd be higher. Yeah, it it, it it's a uh, it. Don't be fooled. It's at 19, but it's a movie I goddamn love so much. Uh, talking about rewatchability factor again. I mean, I've seen this movie so many freaking times. I I think this is you know geared, built as as a kids movie, but I think anyone can reap enjoyment from this movie. 
uh, you know, I'm a sucker for movies with really funny British humor, uh, and I think this one is is one of the best. Not just out of you know some of the goofy physical comedy that comes out of uh, Paddington's transitioning into London life, but also just some great writing from the parents, a great performance from Sally Hawkins, who I think is just fantastic in this movie as the mother. Um, it's a, it's a beautifully tender story too of of finding uh, a family even if it's not one that you're related to by blood. It, you know transitioning into a different life and what that looks like uh even if you yourself are not a bear who is moving from the uh deepest uh, deepest peru into london uh i i think it's just it's just such a a beautiful money a, a funny fantastic movie uh i'm gonna play a clip from it uh it's one of my favorites of you know Paddington doing his Paddington thing along with the the two parents. So enjoy this clip. And if you have not seen this movie because it's oh oh it's a kids movie and you know it's it's not one that I would enjoy, definitely go seek out this movie. It's fantastic. Also go check out its sequel Paddington Two, which is really great. But I still think the first one is eons better than it. So enjoy this clip. Jonathan, don't jump like that. Seven percent of childhood accidents start with jumping. But if I'm gonna be an astronaut, well you're not gonna be an astronaut. You can be whatever you want, peanut. Oh. Stranger danger. What? Keep your eyes down. There's some sort of bear over there. Probably what? selling something. Good evening. No, thank you. Yeah. Hmm. Must be doing something wrong. Hello there. Mary. Oh. Hello. Coming down in stair rods, isn't it? Uh, yes. Mum. Uh, I hope you don't mind me asking, but shouldn't you be at home? Oh, yes, I should. But I haven't quite worked out how to find one. Well, where are your parents? Oh, they died when I was small. Here we go. All I have left is my aunt. And where's she? Darkest Peru. In the home for retired bears. Yeah, of course she is. How did you get here? I stowed away in a lifeboat. Cool. And ate marmalade. Did you know bears like marmalade? I didn't even know bears could talk. Oh, well, I'm a very rare bear. There aren't many of us left. And what are you going to do now? Well, I thought I would probably just sleep over there in that bin. That's the spirit. Anyway. Dad! Why don't we find you some help? Oh, yes, please. If you're sure it's no trouble. Of course it isn't. Is it, darling? Not at all. Yep, so you just heard that clip there from Paddington. Uh, really great movie. Floyd, have you seen this one? I still haven't. I love the sequel. The sequel made my top 20 of that year. I think it was 2017. Yeah. Um, maybe 2018. I think, actually, I think it was 2018. Um, yeah, the, the sequel's fantastic, and there's no particular reason that I haven't actually gone around to, to Paddington, the original, and I believe every word you say, just from just from uh, seeing Paddington too. It's a delightful film in its in and of itself. So definitely one that I needed to check out. Um, we're both hitting some movies on our list that the other hasn't hasn't seen, which is exciting. Yeah, this is good. Okay, so for my number eighteen film, it's a film that you recommended to me that I hadn't seen. Um, that I was kind of like iffy on because it was like this weird, you know, like black and white poster of this woman dancing, and I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna be into this. But I watched Francis Ha. And this movie scared the fuck out of me. Um, I I am so terrified of this movie. One of the one of the best horror movies of the decade, honestly. <laughs> um, 
basic story of it is Greta Gerwig plays Francis, um, this like 28 probably year old um, dancer who really wants to make it in the art industry but just doesn't quite have the chops for it, has the passion but doesn't quite have the talent. Um, and it basically chronicles her and her best friend, um, their relationship, and also them trying to make it in the world. Um, Noah Baumbach directs this film. I think it's his best film. I've seen a lot of his films now. I actually kind of went through a little phase there back at the beginning of quarantine where I watched a lot of his movies, including Squid and the Whale, Meyer Witch Stories, you know, a couple others that I'm just aren't, I'm blanking on right now while we're young. Um, but this one, this was the one that hit me the most as someone who wants to go into an art uh, industry with film, it just kind of scares the shit out of me, um, just with, like, you know, the whole thing, you know, it basically, they took the, they, Greta Gerwig and Noam Bombach just basically took every young artist's dreams and, like, spat in their face with them, um, over the course of the movie, and basically told you to give up because you're not talented, which, it, while insulting, was also exhilarating to watch put on screen, um, part of my psyche with this film is just, like, I, I can't, you know, I can't end up spending all of my money on a weekend trip to Paris like she does at one point just to try to feel something, which is just scary. Um, in other parts of me, is like it, it, by the end of the movie, it's like you know what, whatever happens, you'll be okay. You know, that's kind of that's kind of what the movie ends up being really about. It's like you know, whatever happens, you're gonna be all right. Um, I love the black and white cinematography. I love the the script by Gerwig and Baumbach. I think is is rock solid and um, a, a great performance by Greta Gerwig and. Um, it's the first Greta Gerwig, like, performance or film that I can say that I was, like, 100% locked in, if you know what I'm saying. Like, for most of Gerwig's, like, Lady Bird and Little Women, both films I really like. It just, there is a little bit of a disconnect for me, I think, with them. But with Frances Ha, maybe it was just the subject matter being what it was about a young artist. It just, I was fully in it. And, you know, this is a movie directed by Noah Baumbach, but this was shortly before Greta Gerwig got into directing. So I kind of like to think that this was maybe like a joint venture between Gerwig and Baumbach. And I think it, if, if, I, if you think of this movie as a Greta, Greta Gerwig film as well, it's definitely my favorite of hers. So I, um, you know, the art life is hard, but it's rewarding in some ways. And that's kind of what I took from from Francis Ha. Yeah, that that's a fantastic movie. It's one that I it, it should be in my honorable mentions. I think I will uh, add it in there now. It's just one I kind of forgot about, but it was lower down the list. It, it's a great movie. I watched it for the first time during this uh, quarantine period. Then I think I watched it again the second day. It, it, it's a lovely film. Yeah. I mean, you can watch this and A Squid and the Whale in under three hours. They're both wonderfully short yeah. and concise films. Squid and the Whale is, I think, like a hundred or like an hour and fifteen minutes. Very it's short. So short. Yeah, I, I think this. Oh gosh, it's such a great movie. And and. Uh, uh, undateable saying that has just you know entered into my lexicon. I say mm -hmm. that almost daily. Yep. Uh, I, I think it's a great movie. And I think it's one that you can really take different things out of. Uh, you know, not to go down too far of a rabbit hole, but like for me, I watched this movie for the first time by myself. Got one thing out of it. You know, like okay, this is a great movie. You know, uh, but it ends on a happy note. Then I watched it with my sister, and and she interpreted it in a different way, kind of looking at the friendship from more of a romantic angle. And I was like, wow, I literally that never even crossed my mind. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely a possibility of one of the things they're getting at. Yeah, thing, absolutely. Yeah. And it was like, wow. So the benefit of watching movies with other people. So definitely, definitely check out that movie. And I haven't seen Greta Gerwig in Greenberg or uh, Mistress America, but she is great in uh, 20th Century Those Women. Those are the two Baumbach films that I haven't seen, yeah. Yeah, but 20th Century Women, she is fantastic in. Uh, but moving on to my number 18 pick is a film that I think will appear on, on Floyd's list as well. It is 2016's Denis Villeneuve's 
Arrival. And uh, Villeneuve will pop up again on this list, uh, for sure. And again. Yes, and again. And again. <laughs> but, uh, oh gosh, this is a, uh, a movie I saw, uh, I remember, in theaters back in 2016. And there are some experiences uh, with films that, that I, so uh, what I call them is I call them Inception moments because the first time I had this experience was when I was watching the film Inception. And that's kind of come to define uh, the moment. It's basically just a moment in a film where, uh, you know, I, I know it when I'm in it, but it's a sort of like trance like mood I enter into where it usually involves me like crying uncontrolled, uh, uncontrollably, <laughs> not necessarily because a scene is sad, but just because I am so invested in this movie. The music is so moving, but I don't know how else to describe it, but I, I keep a running list. Like I have a document of like whenever I see a movie that puts me in that state, I always enter it down with a specific moment. And uh, the ending of this movie is, is one such example because it, um, once we reach kind of the culmination of Amy Adams and Jerry Jeremy Renner's storyline as well as as an intersection. Jerry Renner? Jer- Jer- <laughs> yes. Return of Jerry. <laughs> the return of Jerry. Jerry Renner. Um, Jerry Renner and Jerry Eisenberg. <laughs> uh, once we see the culmination of their story along with this uh, fantastic sci-fi plot that's going on, I, I mean, it brought me to complete tears. I think sci-fi movies are at their best when uh, they are able to bring the uh, the scientific, the the space, the out there, vast, you know, unknowable aspects of sci-fi, and bring that uh, hand in hand with the personal and the day to day that we know so well. I think this movie handles grief and handles loneliness and relationships in such a beautiful way. Great, great cinematography. Uh, blanking on the person who did do it, but uh, absolutely stunning. I mean, those first shots of when we see that alien pod landing mm. in different parts of the world are absolutely breathtaking. Villeneuve, oh man, when, when I go back and think about the 2010s, I, I mean, Villeneuve is the filmmaker that probably pops into my head uh, first, and I am so excited to see what he does next. Yeah, the cinematographer was Bradford Young, who also did other movies such as Solo and Selma and Most Violent Year. Some 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 big titles mm, there on yeah. his on his list. Um, but yeah, absolutely agree. Arrival's a great film. Um, coming in number seventeen for me is a film that I've also talked about talked about on one of our Best of the Year uh, podcasts, and that is Wildlife by Paul Dano. Um, you know, this was a film that I think was my number two of that year, behind the Sisters Brothers. Um, but this movie has really stuck with me more than the Sisters Brothers. I, I love the Sisters Brothers, but I don't find myself thinking about it very often. Um, so it's not even, it's not on this list, I can tell you that right now. Um, uh, it probably stuck in my head this much because, well, not, I, well, in no way, really, identical to my own experience with my parents. It, it kind of gives you that same feeling that I had when, when my parents were, were going through a divorce, and I think that... A lot of people, even though this takes place in the 1950s, I think a lot of people who have gone through their parents having a divorce will understand this film and will kind of jibe with the Ed Oxenbold character. Um, I love all three of the lead performances. All three of them are fantastic. I know you have a particular affinity for Carey Mulligan's performance in this film. Um, some of the most harrowing scenes of the decade um, where, where things happen and it just feels so real and deep on a human emotional level that... Uh, so so few films are able to achieve, and the fact that Paul Dano was able to accurately capture that in his first film is very uh, impressive, and I hope to see more of his films going forward. Um, this this film was very cathartic to watch as an audience member. Uh, this this movie kind of you know straightway 
white men don't need to feel seen very often in film, but having, you know, I, I felt seen when I watched this movie, kind of some of the things that I've gone through in my life, um, you know, it, it was just, it was a very moving experience for me, and that, by the end of this movie, kind of becomes very clear that the Ed Oxenbold is a young artist, um, very similar to Francis Ha, um, and, and kind of watching him come into his own in a very beautiful way by the, the last shot of the film is just so beautiful and heartbreaking. Um, but then also seeing, like, seeing his parents kind of, like, doing what they can to help him with that is, is very moving at the same time. And while, while so many things are so sad in that film, I think the ending, while also very sad, kind of gives you hope that, like, these two people are going to do what they can to support him in doing what he wants to do, which, again, you know, a nice thing that parallels to my own life. So I think no matter what stage of life you're in, you can relate to this film in some way, and I think it's a, it's a gorgeous film. It's, it's a great movie for sure. You know, as also a child of divorced parents, you know, I can't relate to everything in this movie, but it's, it's you know, there are certainly some scenes that definitely hit hard. It was one of those theater experiences for me where I didn't want to move a boat. I, I didn't want to rustle anything. I didn't want to make any kind of noise because this is a movie mm. that rests in the silences. And I think that Dano pulls that off extremely well. But, uh, Moving into my number 17 pick, uh, I'm going with a director that Floyd has talked about. It is Moonlight. It is the 2016 uh, Best Picture winner, Moonlight. It, it, this is a movie for me that uh, I, I it's a film that stays with me. It, it, it's a film that I think is impeccably acted. I, I, I think it's the, the last, what I always talk about this movie is the last, the third chapter mm. of this movie once we see Charon uh, in, in his third stage with, the, with that third actor is some of the most beautiful scenes of the entire decade. Uh, they are scenes that no matter how much I watch them, I am on the edge of my seat. Not because it, not because it is intense action or in, very intense dialogue or drama, but because Jenkins has me holding on to every single silence, every single uh, cadence, and up and down in the in these actors' lines has me on the edge of my seat. And I, I think the two performances here are off the wall amazing uh i feel like i can read every single emotion that's going across jerome's face you know just with every single smile and frown and twitch it just absolutely brilliant uh, i think a lot of movies do try to capture this uh you know uh a child growing up in different stages of their life but i think uh this one really nailed it on the head i think the casting was fantastic all three of these actors you know while looking alike i think still uh, capture that essence to the character Sharon. It's uh, it, it's a deeply moving experience for me. I, I saw it once by myself, then I rewatched it when they were showing it again in theaters by myself, and just sat there in a seat and cried because it's just it's it's stunning. Mahershala Ali gives a great performance. I mean, an actor that was in a bunch of bunch of films before, but uh, kind of didn't really rise to the forefront until this film when he got his best best supporting actor nomination. This fantastic scene, of course, the now iconic scene of him teaching him how to swim in the ocean, acting as a sort of father figure. Uh, it's it's a really important figure for representation's sake. Um, you know, this being nominated or winning for. Or almost not winning after the you know famous snafu at the Oscars, which I think was you know another defining moment of the 2010s. Uh, I think this is Absolutely. a really important movie. Uh, I, I was very very happy that it won. Uh, brilliant film. Yeah, as I said, a really really great film. Just I just slightly prefer if Beale Street could talk. I think that one just hit me a little more emotionally. Um, but yeah, no, great piece of work. Um, my number 16 film. 
of the decade is a film that I also just talked about on my 2019 list, so I won't get too, too into it, and that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I think this is Tarantino's best movie. I don't know. I think I, I think I enjoy Inglorious Bastards a little more. Just that that movie's just crazy and off the wall and just hyper violent and so many fun ways. But you know, it, th- this movie ties into that also very similarly because it is an alternate history type of film. Um, you know, it, it, I I love the performances of this film. I think Brad Pitt, while kind of strange, I've said this many times, it doesn't feel like an Oscar winning performance. It it is a great performance. It just doesn't feel that kind of flashiness that you normally see. With a uh, with a with a best actor or a best supporting actor win, but he's great. DiCaprio's fantastic. All of the supporting players are really really good, um, including Bruce Dern, who's in it for like two seconds, but he is so fun in that movie too. I don't know why. I think I just saw that scene recently, so that's why it popped into my head. Um, yeah, obviously Tarantino knows what he's doing. He's fantastic behind the camera in this movie. Production design is impeccable. Cinematography is impeccable. Um, and I. I as I said back in the 2019 list, there is what this film does with history shows you the cathartic nature that cinema can provide. Um, you know, just there, there are things that only cinema can do um, in some ways. And uh, yeah, I love this movie. I miss LA. God, I miss LA. I was out there right when the pandemic shut down. Basically, like I, w- I was sitting, small side note, I was sitting in the Hard Rock Cafe on Hollywood Boulevard when I got the email from Pitt that we were shutting mm-hmm. down. And just the, you know, that was on the Wednesday, I think. I flew out there on Monday, and I flew back on Friday. And just the shift in America, in the world, from that Monday flying out to that Friday flying back was so crazy. And, uh, yeah, anytime I think, you know, back to that time, I kind of somewhat also think of this movie with, you know, the sweeping nature that it shows L.A. in a simpler time. But, uh, yeah, I love this movie. Fantastic film, and I know that you like it as well. I don't know if it'll come up on your list, though. Yeah, uh, it won't come up on my list, but it, it's an amazing movie. I, I think I'd probably put it... Ooh, it's probably Tarantino's second for me with Pulp Fiction taking the number one slot. Although, you know, I think if I mm. watch both of those movies back to back, that might change. Um, it's a beautiful film. I like what you said. It, it absolutely provides some catharsis. Um, it's, you know, Tarantino's revisionist history, but a lot different. And it's definitely, a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a more of a melancholic film at times. A little bit different from what we've seen from Tarantino. Great film. Moving into my number 16 film. Um, kind of get rest of these past few movies have been the 2016 2017 era and uh jumping right back into 2017 with Lady Bird uh we talked about Greta Gerwig we're going right back to Greta Gerwig with Lady Bird uh which uh was her directorial debut and uh you know a uh I, I like I said I'm a sucker for coming of age movies and when they do it well damn it does it hit me and you know you talked about this with wildlife um I can't relate to all aspects of this movie I have never been a 18-year-old girl living in Sacramento, California. Um, you know, I, I have, I've never, uh, I'm not going to a college in New York City. I do not have these plans to, uh, you know, become an artist. I do not have a super fractured relationship with my mother. But I, I can relate to so many uh, key components of this movie. I know what it feels like, you know, to, to have that first love and have that first kiss and have the swell of emotions that washes over you. I know what it feels like to experience clicks in high school. I know what it feels like to, you know, kind of feel a little bit estranged from your best friend as you uh, embark on different paths through high school with different friend groups. I know what it feels like to kind of fake it in a friend group and pretend like you know what you're doing when you actually have no idea just to try to fit in with the cool kids and then you realize that it's kind of stupid of what you did. 
uh, I think Gerwig really taps into those essential high school moments that make these this film really, really uh, relatable and, and essential for me. Saoirse Ronin, a great performer of the 2010s. I just recently watched Brooklyn, which was really, uh, I mean, she was in The Lovely Bones, but I, Brooklyn got a lot, a lot of buzz for her. Um, I think she might have been nominated or that film was nominated yeah, for something. Yeah, really great movie. Really like that one. Uh, this was a film I, I return to very, very often, and it's one that I know some people criticize the ending for. You know, it feel like it, it was chopped off too short, or it kind of didn't leave them. They didn't. They weren't sure how to feel. For me, this movie ended perfectly. Uh, it left me with something to think about, but I also felt like I had a uh, a, a definite conclusion uh, to this beautiful story. Uh, yeah, like I said before, this is a film that I enjoy. Uh, enjoyed when I saw it back when I when I saw it in theaters. I've only seen it the one time, so again, it it, it wasn't a movie that stuck with me in in terms of like me feeling the need to go back and watch it again. I don't think even if I did rewatch it, it would end up on this list. But it, it is a good film, and I can't argue with any of the things you said. I just didn't quite hit me the same way, which is you know why film is subjective. But um, once again, I'm gonna use a rompin' trailer to introduce my number fifteen film of the decade. So enjoy this. My name is Jordan Belfort. The year I turned 26, I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. Ah! We're making a name for ourselves. Ah! Nobody knows if the stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in circles. You know what a Fugazi is? Fugazi. It's a fake. Hey, Fugazi, Fugazi. It's a wazzy, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. Was all this legal? Absolutely not. We were making more money than we knew what to do with. We don't work for you, man. Yeah, my money takes you, Goose. Technically, you do work for me. So, as you heard there, the famous song Black Skinhead featured in the trailer for The Wolf of Wall Street, my number 15 film, a film that Matt has already talked about, but let me second a lot of things that he said about Martin Scorsese's masterpiece here. Um, the, the first two hours of this movie are a romp. Um, and do I understand why the the first two hours of this movie left certain uneducated frat boys to latch onto it? Yes, I do. And does it surprise me that then they don't understand the last hour is telling them that they were stupid for enjoying the first two hours? No, it does not surprise me. Um, Scorsese treats this movie like, like one of his gangster movies, like, uh, uh, I've only seen Mean Streets and The Irishman, but I'm assuming also Casino and Goodfellas where he, he knows how exhilarating um, some of these moments are, just on a base human level, to, to do some of these kind of things. And he understands that for a short time, that can be very fun to watch and very fun to live, but eventually the repercussions of that comes back to you. And I had a conversation even with someone who, who from back home recently about this film, where they just, they they didn't get it. All they got from the movie was like, that looks like a fun lifestyle. And I'm like... I think that's why a lot of people like this movie, but that is not the point. The point is always with a Scorsese movie about excess is to pull the rug out from under that. And that's what what you said is exactly right. The last hour of this film shows you how much of a low life Jordan Belfort is or was at the time. I don't know if he's changed completely. I kind of doubt that he has, but maybe. This is a film. It's fictionalized. You know, some things are probably not accurate. But uh, like The Irishman, this movie despises its main character. Um, and revels in taking everything from them by the end of it. And um, 
yeah, the, you know, the cast is spot on from top to bottom. Like you said, DiCaprio's probably best performance of the decade. Um, he is really able to to go through the, the change from that first scene with Matthew McConaughey where he's just this kind of like bright-eyed young kid coming out of college to just this drug-addled maniac at some points and then back again to somewhat sober Jordan Belfort trying to sell people on like the power of positive thinking type things at the end and just it's, it's this amazing odyssey of a three-hour film and it, it proves that Scorsese still got the ch- the touch this late into his career um you know he 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 gets that these guys are almost worse than anyone in his gangster films you know these are the people who really did damage to a lot of people's lives, um, people on Wall Street, and ultimately what this movie is, is showing you is that it, it, these people are the ones who get the least punishment by the U.S. government, and it, it, it ultimately becomes a critique on not only our criminal justice system, but unchecked, rampant capitalism that allows for people like Jordan Belfort to exist for a long time, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly moving film by the end, I think, uh, not just in the thrills of the first two hours. So I think it is Scorsese's best movie of the decade, and I absolutely love it. Yeah, great movie. Very uh, loved what he said about that. Uh, moving into my number 15 pick, uh, this is dipping back a little bit earlier with the, uh, in terms of years. We're jumping into 2013 with a Coen Brother movie, uh, Inside Lewin Davis, uh, one that Floyd had on his honorable mentions. But one I'm glad for, you brought it up. One for me that is uh, absolutely uh, essential for this decade. I own this one on Criterion. Uh, I, I've rewatched it many times. Uh, I, this was a movie for me that I think really illustrated what you can do with narrative. This one really surprised me with how they organized their film. Uh, it it kind of pulls the rug out under you with the ending of the movie. Uh, it, it ended, and I wasn't sure how to feel about it. And I thought about it some more. I rewatched it, and you know, I I I, I began to see it not as some completely nihilistic, hopeless view of this man's life but uh you know regardless of whether or not he had of whether or not the oscar isaac character might have had any sort of direct contribution whether or not he found success himself he was in a time of great change great power regardless of, of whether he realized it or not he uh, he was amidst the greats and his work uh you know subconsciously or otherwise influenced the other greats of that time period like bob dylan and such uh Adam Driver, once again, you know, given a great performance in this movie. Uh, uh, the clip I'm going to play later on is the uh, Please Mr. Kennedy scene. It's him and uh, Justin Timberlake. Uh, I wish this song would have gotten nominated for uh, Best Original Song, but I, th- I believe it was because it was too derivative of other 50 songs that they couldn't nominate it, which is a bummer because it's so good, and Justin Timberlake gives, it gives a great performance. But Oscar Isaac, I think one of this this decade's greatest greatest actors, and Carrie Mulligan, uh, a great team here. I think the Coen brothers' look of this movie, they really go all in for a very uh, gray and brown and fuzzy, uh, very almost like a textured look to this film as Oscar Isaac stumbles around New York City during this very iconic times. So we get, uh, we encounter beat poets, we encounter bars, we encounter these iconic. Uh, village, Greenwich Village destinations where folk music, you know, even before uh, it, it became the forefront of America's music scene, it was on the rise. And to a few small people in this town, it, it, was, it was something that was local and it was something that was special to them. And I think uh, the Coen brothers have a real love for that sort of community. And it definitely comes through in this movie. Beautiful film. So, okay. Good. Shout. 
Please, Mr. Kennedy, take one, and we're rolling. One second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. Oh, please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. I sweat when they stuff me in the pressure suits. Bubble helmet, flash board and boots. Nowhere a bit outer? in gravity suits. I need to breathe. Outer? Don't need to be a space. Yeah, I, I love this movie, and I'm, I'm glad that you put it on your list so that you could so eloquently talk about it there. Very close to making my list. Great film. Uh, coming in number 14 for me is a film that you already, already talked about and a film that we've already talked about extensively. That is The Perks of Being a Wallflower uh, by T- Steve Chbosky. Fantastic film. Uh, coming of Age in Pittsburgh kind of hits home with me, so you know, go back and listen to that podcast. I feel like I literally just a few weeks ago talked about this movie for two hours so i don't feel like i really need to get into it too much and beyond what you said i can kind of second everything with that but so instead of going into my thoughts on park so being a wallflower again i'm just going to make you listen to the ending of the film which is so beautiful so there's a little spoiler warning here but i literally did this two days ago as i drove through the fort pitt tunnel to to come into pittsburgh so listen to the beautiful ending of perks of being a wallflower i found the tunnel song Let's drive. I don't know if I will have the time to write any more letters because I might be too busy trying to participate. So if this does end up being the last letter, I just want you to know that I was in a bad place before I started high school. And you helped me. Even if you didn't know what I was talking about or know someone who's gone through it, you made me not feel alone. Because I know there are people who say all these things don't happen. And there are people who forget what it's like to be 16 when they turn 17. I know these will all be stories someday, and our pictures will become old photographs. We'll all become somebody's mom or dad. But right now, these moments are not stories. This is happening. I am here, and I am looking at her, and she is so beautiful. I can see it. This one moment when you know you're not a sad story. You are alive. And you stand up and see the lights on the buildings and everything that makes you wonder. And you're listening to that song on that drive with the people you love most in this world. And in this moment, I swear, we are infinite. So as you heard there, Heroes by David Bowie. I hope we don't get a copyright claim for you for using that clip. Um, 
but yeah, g- gorgeous film um, about coming of age is my number 14 film. So, Matt, going to year 14. Yes, my number 14 is a film from two brothers who I think have made a real stamp on this decade in terms of making films that are out there, different, and completely fresh. Uh, this one is their film with Robert Pattinson, Good Time, from 2017. The film that, uh, out of this one in Uncut Gems, I would consider this one to be the better film. Uncut Gems, I love, but it's not one that really sticks with me. Not one that I ever feel the need to rewatch. You know, it's one that I enjoyed in theaters, but this is the one that sticks with me. Because for me, I think this is the one with the most emotional resonance. The fact that they were able to craft this film with, uh, you know, other than Patton- Pattinson, a, a cast, and, and other than Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, a, a cast of no names, a cast of unknowns. They're, they're kind of known for uh, casting their friends from New York City, uh, casting the, these people that they kind of met on the street. I mean, heaven knows what their first movie was. Literally, the the homeless character was a homeless New York City person, a former drug addict. I I, I think they're so uh, able to capture that gritty uh, vibe of New York that was really prevalent in the 1970s with those crime uh, dramas. But they really uh, give it a 20th first century modernized spin on it with their cinematography, with with the frenetic pace of their movies, uh, with the colors that explode every now and then, with a claustrophobic feel that uh, makes you makes you feel engrossed in the movie without ever making you feel too squeamish. Uh, I, I think it does a lovely job of not necessarily going the the Scorsese route and taking you down the the gangs and the mafia route in New York City, but taking you down. Uh, you know, these are the people that life is kind of forgotten. These are the people that are down on their luck and aren't committing these gigantic bank heists. Like, no, these are people that bought these masses at Dollar Tree, and now Robert Pattinson and his brother are trying this failed attempt to make some money. And you know, of course, if you've seen the movie, you know it goes wrong, and it's basically. Uh, I believe it takes place over the course of a day, um, and, and I think at the at the core of this movie is the relationship between uh, the Benny Safdie character and the Robert Pattinson character, um, and the way that Robert Pattinson isn't a good character, and he does things in this movie that are gross and that that are really hard to watch at times. Uh, and the fact that they still make you root for this character and kind of get behind him, but at the end of the movie, you realize, okay. Uh, this was the character that's the end of the movie, and I think the way that it ends with a kind of a focus on Benny Safdie uh, and a focus on family, uh, I think is gorgeous. And the beautiful use, one of my favorite songs, original songs for a movie of this decade, is The Beautiful and the Damned, sung by the iconic Iggy Pop uh, as the credits roll over this movie. Makes me absolutely sob on control of me. Uh, beautiful film, and I, I'm just so excited to see what they do next. Yeah, I, I think it's the opposite for me. I go back to Uncut Gems more than Good Time, which Uncut Gems should have been in my honorable mentions. But uh, yeah, no, I agree. I watched this movie during quarant during you know since the pandemic, and we've had time to watch these films. Uh, really good film. Didn't quite you know make a crack into my top twenty five, but I agree with you. That last scene with Benny Safdie in in the uh, institution, whatever you want to call it. Um, was heartbreaking and beautiful, and I think uh, one of the best endings, I would say, of the decade. It's just fantastic, fantastic ending. And speaking of another movie with a fantastic ending, I'm going to let a quick clip from the film introduce my number 13 film of the decade. You're going to teach them your name and Ian's. Yeah, so that we can learn their names, if they have names, and then introduce pronouns later. These are all grade school words. Eat, walk. 
Help me understand. Oh, no, 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 not the top. Okay, this is where you want to get to, right? That is the question. Okay. So, first, we need to make sure that they understand what a question is. Okay, the nature of a request for information along with the response. Then, we need to clarify the difference between a specific you and a collective you, because... We don't want to know why Joe Alien is here. We want to know why they all landed. And purpose requires an understanding of intent. We need to find out, do they make conscious choices or is their motivation so instinctive that they don't understand a why question at all? And, and biggest of all, we need to have enough vocabulary with them that we understand their answer. I get it. Stick to your list. Just don't add anything to it. So as you heard there, Amy Adams in Arrival, uh, Denny Villeneuve, the first Denny Villeneuve film to make it onto my list. Um, you know, th this movie is very visual, so it was hard to find a clip um, audio-wise to put in the film, but I feel like the, the question clip there of her explaining how a question works um, was kind of the most audio pleasant one to pick um I, I agree with you i think thinking back on the 2010s the the film director that really comes to mind is denny villeneuve which um he made his kind of debut in american cinema um in 2013 with prisoners but I, even recently in the last week or two i watched um, a french film or a french canadian film of his called polytechnic which was just so raw and heartbreaking to watch um fantastic film uh i love this film uh, you know, he's using the filmmaking medium to the fullest, uh, literally making a circular film, which I didn't think was quite possible. Um, very similar to the language, you know, obviously of the heptapods in the film. Uh, the, the entire film, as pointed out by many others, is a huge Kuleshov effect, which if you don't know what that is, it's a kind of a, you know, a film studies term. Um, actually, Alfred Hitchcock was a, a big proponent of is the way that editing, um, editing two pieces of film or three pieces of film together can elicit different responses depending on th what you see in between the two pieces of film. Uh, so at one point, you know, Hitchcock explains how you see um, Hitchcock standing there smiling and then you cut to um, uh, a wife and her, or a, a wife, obviously, uh, a woman and her baby and, you know, he's just this kindly old man looking at it. And then you also look at it, you know, cut together with a, a shrewdly dressed woman and then you think, oh, he's a creepy old man. Um, that, that kind of idea is put into exact use throughout the entirety of this film. Um, and I don't want to spoil it just in case anyone hasn't seen Arrival. It was our actually first review on the Cinema Talk podcast. Uh, you can not go back and listen to that. You can, but you probably shouldn't. It's probably not very good Last for the um, of a review. But, uh, this movie kind of just, it, it, it gets deeper into, like, the language of film in a way that a whole lot of films don't do, um... Because, you know, it's about written and spoken communication, but in the end, I feel like it's Villeneuve saying, like, this is what we can do with film as a language, which is very beautiful. Deacon Cinematography is some of the best um, of his career. I don't know how he didn't win 
um, an Oscar for this movie. Um, but I mean, at least he's winning them now for 2049 and 1917. Um, both movies with years in the title. Maybe he should, he should just do that every time. Have a have a title a year in the title and he'll be fine. That sounds like the, the Oscar. plan, yeah. Um, but yeah, some beautiful, gorgeous stuff. Like one of the most iconic images I think of the decade has to be that rolling cloud down a hill with the um, the heptapod ship just sitting there in the in the mist. It's just gorgeous. Um, this is one of three Villeneuve films that we'll be making um, an appearance on this list and make you feel as if your your brain and emotions are all on screen in a really re- real way. Uh, you've probably seen this film, but. You know, I'll leave out the spoilers just in case. So, uh, yeah, I, I love Arrival and I love Denny Villeneuve, so I'm glad that I could put a couple of his films on this list and be ready for some more coming up. Yeah, great movie. All right, uh, moving into my number 13 pick, we're kind of uh, getting down to the wire here as this will be a uh, part one of our top 25. We're just going to go to film number 11, and then you can listen to part two to continue. But uh, my number 13 is a film that caused some divide between me and Floyd, if you listen to our movie journal on this one and the best of the year. Uh, it is Ari Aster's masterpiece, <sighs> Midsummer, uh, <laughs> from last year, 2019. Uh, this, along with The Portrait of Lady on Fire, uh, kind of was my favorite film of that year. I'm st- I- I'm still not sure where I stand on which one's better. Right now, I'm leaning Portrait. but um, Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely leading towards Portrait. <laughs> yeah, well. I know where Floyd's leaning. But uh, Ari Aster and Robert Eggers, I think, are some of the most exciting filmmakers to come out of these 2010s. I think when we look back on this time period, well, I, I hope that each of them have a really good third movie. Um, and, like, if they have a bad fourth movie, okay, whatever. But I just think, like, just looking back, like, it would be so awesome if each of them just have such a great trilogy. Like, I can imagine this box set that we can buy from Criterion 30 years in the future or something, which makes me very excited. Uh, I think Midsummer is a wildly creative movie. I think the way that he creates horror out of uh, a movie, you know, composed for the most part uh in daytime is is extremely effective i think his eye for production design his eye for the cinematography his eye for visuals that are wholly unique and completely terrifying uh is outstanding just the image of that triangular building uh that perfectly geometric shape set against raw nature makes my skin crawl i don't know why but but he's so effective at doing it I you know I know this is a, a divisive topic, but for me the storyline works. For me the Florence Pugh storyline works so effectively. Uh, I I think that uh, the way that uh, he uses her grief in a twisted way and incorporates it into the horror in that uh, that kind of becomes what the community latches onto. That becomes what the community her need for acceptance twists in the end to make her a evil character that does terrible things to Jack Rayner's, uh, you know, acknowledging he's a douchebag boyfriend, but, you know, you know, obviously does not deserve what happened to him if you've seen the movie. The way that, you know, I, I, I feel sadness for her in the end, I feel on her side in a twisted sort of way. I like how he kind of points the finger at us then at the end of the movie. I think Florence Pugh specifically, I mean, you know, the shot of her walking with the, with that massive dress of, of flowers weighing her down and that infamous closing shot makes me uh, just love... It's, it's why I love movies, you know, when I see something this original and, and this unique. I, I think it's a absolutely fantastic movie that will stay with me for a very long time. I love the cinematography. 
Cinematography here in this movie is fantastic. I can't really say much positive other than that in Florence Pugh. Uh, but yeah, no. We'll, 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 I'm going to stay away from the negativity, you know? We're talking about yeah. the best movies. Positivity. Stay away from the negativity, Ryan. Uh, coming in number 12, I told you that uh, Villanova would be making a few more appearances, and here's one that Matt's going to fight me on. Speaking my of negativity. <laughs> yeah, my number 12 is Denny Villeneuve's Enemy, another film about um, the brain and how it functions. Uh, it's another film with gorgeous cinematography, just this time it emphasizes like the bleakness of the world for people with depression as of... Uh, as one of Hall's characters here is definitely depressed. Uh, yes, it's one of those movies. There are two versions of Jake Hall in this movie, and that is The Enemy. And The Enemy is within yourself, or The Enemy is your long-lost twin. Uh, it's kind of up for interpretation. I think I know where I lean, but, you know, the movie doesn't really give you concrete answers. Um, I don't want to say too much about the movie because of spoilers, but I, I do love the way that the film plays with um, repressed or remote, repressed emotions, depression, and how all of those things can work. Um, inside someone's psyche. Um, the enemy can be within or external for the film to work, honestly. I think both ways are, are acceptable in terms of having this film uh, pack a punch in terms of what it's trying to say. And I, I love how the film can be interpreted different ways. Um, and it is kind of like a, a Rorschach test, much like us last year. You can kind of see what you want to in the film. And, um, you know, I, I, I... Okay, I'll put it this way. I do think they're the same person, but... You know, if you think they're not, that's totally valid, and I think that's fine. Um, this is definitely the least seen of Villeneuve's Hollywood films, uh, but I'm de- I- I'm glad to have this platform to be able to say, go watch Enemy. It is one of the most haunting films of the decade. The last shot, um, I told my roommate freshman year to watch this film after I watched it for the first time, and he was you know watching it on his laptop on his lap, and I like uh, I could tell when he was starting to get towards the end. Uh, just from the audio, and I just watched him uh, for the last shot, and this this guy jumped out of his bed when the last shot hit him. It's just it is such an amazingly startling last shot that I think has a lot of meaning behind it, um, and I think that this movie I think ultimately is very critical of Jake Gyllenhaal's both Jake Gyllenhaal's character um, characters in this movie, and I think another film that kind of plays with the way uh, masculinity can really get in the way of maybe good-intentioned men um, who end up hurting women because of the the whole idea of masculinity. So, number 12 for me is Enemy. Yeah, it's a movie that I, I really hated when I saw it. I, I mean, I don't, like, it's tough for me because I love all Villeneuve's movies, and then for me, this was just such a bomb, and I was like, what happened? Why? I'm supposed to love all these movies. Why? Like, I wanted this to be, you know, a perfect filmography for me, but I... I, I do, I, I want to rewatch it, you know, I will give it a second chance, but damn it, that this movie did not gel for me, and I, I, I just, I, I could, I felt like there were no concrete uh, ideas or anything in there for me to hold on to, to really gain a grasp of it. But moving on uh, to my number 12 uh, pick, this is going to be one I just talked about, it's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I, I, I kind of threw this one in Midsummer right next to each other, because like I said, not really sure how I feel about like which one is better than the other, uh, but for now I'm going to put this one here, uh, this is uh, the masterpiece from 2019, uh, I believe the f- only foreign language film I have on here, it's a French film, I wish I could include a clip of here, some of the dialogue, because it's really well written and very well acted, but don't think you will quite understand it with this being an audio medium, except for our French listeners out there, you know, maybe we have a following in France. Maybe, maybe we have a couple. If we have, maybe we have a couple. Um, I, I, I uh, this was a movie that I was a little, you know, it received positive 
a huge sort of buzz uh, from festivals and such. But you know, it was a little bit apprehensive going in. You know, I, I didn't know sometimes um, films like this can go one way and just be kind of a boring slog. But for me, I thought this movie uh, held my attention from beginning to end. Yeah, it was a deeply emotional experience for me. Uh, I found myself crying lots and lots. I think did I see this with you, Floyd. We did, yeah. We did. I was crying lots and lots. Um, it, it, it's a film, I think, that it very uh, beautifully captures the uh, love and, and the temporary nature of love, you know, whatever circumstances drive you to be apart, uh, but being able to latch on to the good times you had and just uh, expanding uh, these two, th- this lesbian relationship into uh, a critique of women's roles in that time and how absolutely uh, suppressed they were and kept as servants in these houses and forced into these marriages that they had little to no say in and how uh, if if during this time period we had more examples of people exercising their creativity like the, like this uh, this main character in the film being a painter we see her uh, being allowed on her lo- on her own, away from the societal norms, they kind of craft out this idyll this idyllic house for themselves. When uh, the, the 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 older people, the owners of the house, are away, when they're allowed to make art um, about birth, about these uh, you know experiences to women that are so essential to them, but which we you know society rarely gets a window into through art because during this time period they weren't allowed to make art about it. Uh, I think is absolutely stirring. I was surprised with the ending, kind of where it went, and it kind of goes, you think it's over, but then it's not over, and it led to one of my favorite closing shots of the decade. Uh, kind of a similarity to this in Call Me By Your Name, uh, but this one I do enjoy more. I think this is a beautiful movie. Definitely go check it out if you haven't. Yeah, I agree with that. I think this movie is, a, is slightly better than Call Me By Your Name, which is another movie that I think made my top 20 of that year. Um, actually, no, yeah, I definitely did, because I remember playing a clip from it. Um, so coming in at number 11 for me, um, is a film that I think you've seen and liked. Yes, we've had many conversations about this. My number 11 is a very little-seen film that, again, literally I think I'm probably the only person that has this on a best-of-the-decade list, and that is The Way, Way Back. Um, mm. Sam Rockwell actually won his Oscar for this film. You know, Not a whole lot of people know that, but, yeah, it's a fun fact. He actually, hmm. he actually won an Oscar for this movie. Not three billboards, as most most websites and historians will tell you. Uh, of course, I'm kidding. But uh, the entire cast is incredible here. Steve Carell, Sam Rockwell, Alison Janney, Tony Collette, Mai Rudolph, uh, Nat Faxon, and Jim Rash with the directors, and also Liam James. Uh, so many of these people have gone on to do huge things throughout the rest of the decade. You know, we got a couple Oscar winners there, um, along with Steve Carell and Tony Collette, who are icons, along with Mai Rudolph, who is a hilarious comedian. Um, but the name that's forgotten there very often is very often is Liam James. Uh, this is one of his last films that he really did. He kind of stopped acting after his childhood, but I think he is absolutely fantastic in this film as just this awkward teenager who doesn't really fit in anywhere except for this one place that he feels at home. And, you know, while this may be just a for- another forgotten coming-of-age film for so many people, um, much like Parks for me, this film just kind of gets what it's like to be at a situ- in a certain situation at a certain age. And that all of these people and moments feel so real in this film and it's just it is such a heartwarming film for me to think about um you know maybe i guess this is another comedy so maybe i spoke too soon about world's end being the best comedy this is a very funny film as well but for me i think what i really come back to is 
beyond maybe just Sam Rockwell's character's humor is just maybe, the, again, the pain behind it, and then also very much the pain in Liam James's life that is that feels so real. Um, this, this may be another movie for me, you know, that is just because of the personal connection that I had with it when I saw it, because this is a movie about a 14-year-old that I saw when I was 14, um, and, you know, I still think it holds up in that I think it should be known by our generation the way that Perks of Being a Wallflower is, and it unfortunately is not, and not a whole lot of people who didn't see it when it came out um, ever really think about it or talk about it. So I'm going to play a quick clip right here of the hilarious Sam Rockwell um, asking Maya Rudolph, is it a homicide? Enjoy. Now, I know I keep asking you, but when are we getting new employee t-shirts? Two years from uh, yesterday. No, all joking aside. And this makes me self-conscious about my body. It's not a place that I want to be. <laughs> Disappoint me, kid. You're late. Plan on making a habit of this. What? You're fired. But I just. You make a valid point. Welcome back. It's benefits. You waste an exorbitant amount of time. You know that. Suit up. You don't look too pumped. Come on, let's get pumped. This is the place where dreams are made, are destroyed. Depends on how you feel about working at a water park. Um, we have a situation over at Harpoon Lagoon. Is it a homicide? Yeah, it's a homicide. I knew this day would come. So as you heard there, the hilarious Sam Rockwell in my last pick of this part of the top of the decade, my number 11 pick, The Way, Way Back. Yeah, so I have seen that movie. Uh, I did really enjoy it. Uh, I think it's just one of those matters of personal experience, not one that really stuck with me. But I, I really, I, I love it whenever, you know, a movie is very special to one person. So I, I love to hear your story about that. Uh, so coming in, my number 11, uh, which will also be my last uh, set of this part one is a film we have talked about extensively in our 2017 podcast. It is the great, it is the uh, fantastic sequel, Blade Runner 2049. Uh, another fantastic Villeneuve movie and another great Deacon cinematography on here. This was the one that won his first Oscar. Uh, this was a movie that I was actually surprised to see it at number 11. Um, I did some rewatching, I did some more thinking about it, and it was one that. Uh, I, I do have a bit more problems with it the more I think about it and the more I saw it. But still, I, I you just can't overlook uh, the absolutely amazing uh, cinematography of this movie and I think the fantastic performances. I love the way that Villeneuve fleshed out and expanded the the Blade Runner world without taking it too far in and you know making it feel not like the original. I think he perfectly captured the original. Speaking of the original, Harrison Ford gives probably one of like one of his greatest performances. I think really certainly his best. Um, you know, uh, in the two thousands. I, I think he really shines here uh, when he's able to sit down and have those conversations with Neander Wallace when we see just as, as the light kind of travels around his face and, and the grief in his voice as he talks about Rachel, as he talks about uh, this love he once had. It is a, a, a stirring film and a nice callback to my first ever uh, podcast I did uh, with the guys here, the first one that I yes. did uh, back in 20. 
17 was Blade Runner, the original one, in, t- in anticipation of 2049. So uh, a nice, which we eventually reviewed. Yes, which we did eventually review. Uh, not unlike this, this, uh, this podcast, this episode, which has taken a while. But uh, a great movie. I'm sure lots of you have seen it. But if you haven't seen it in a while, definitely go check it out again. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't very successful at the box office. Um, but you know what? Villeneuve is back with Dune, so we're gonna get, get another great sci-fi epic very soon. Yeah, that's normally a mark of a of a good classic that it didn't do well at the box office and will be appreciated later. Later, so um, I know that we said that we were just doing our twenty five through eleven on this podcast, but I think it would be pretty silly for me to not talk about Blade Runner twenty forty nine right now, mm. as it is my number ten pick. Uh, so I'm just gonna talk about Blade Runner twenty forty nine instead of splitting our Blade Runner talk between two podcasts, which would feel a little silly. Um, we didn't know each other's list going into this, so this was not planned. But you know. It is what it is, yeah. Everything what Matt said, exactly. How many times can you say that a sequel is um, is better than an original classic, you know? It's so rare. Uh, but I think Villeneuve accomplished that. And I should say, this is my last Denny Villeneuve film, so I've picked three now in the last, you know, however many minutes that we've been talking about movies. Um, but yeah, no, uh, only a filmmaker like Denny Villeneuve paired with a visual genius like Roger Deakin could put uh, put together such a masterpiece. Uh, I, I haven't seen this film since our review two and a half years ago. I have to be honest, I haven't seen this film in a long time. But the imagery, I think, is what really remains um, in my brain. It is some of the most iconic imagery of the decade. You know, like uh, Ryan Gosling walking through that orange haze with the different, you know, statues there of, like, the woman, like, with her head turned towards the sky. It's just such an iconic image. No doubt, this is the best cinematography of the decade. Like, I can't. I can't think of anything better than this movie in terms of cinematography. Um, Similar to Blade Runner, I love how this film deals with the idea of what makes a human a human, uh, memory, uh, the value of life, you know, these very heady concepts that I feel like both films very successfully uh, deal with without ever feeling, you know, preachy or over the top or corny. Uh, there's, There's no scene in this film as impactful as the tears and rain scene with Roy Batty in the original. Uh, There aren't too many of you know, those kind of scenes in cinema that are more impactful than that scene. I think that is one of maybe the greatest scenes in cinema history. It's just so fantastic. What a what an amazing uh, performance by the late, great Rucker Hauer. Um, but overall, I do think that this film is better than, than the original. And I have a very uh, touching scene, I think, um, to talk uh, to show show you guys here, and that is the uh, the memory maker scene where Ryan Gosling goes to talk to someone who who makes memories for replicants. So enjoy this scene, and then we will be with you guys on the other side for the top ten of the decade. It's nice. It's better than nice. It feels authentic, and if you have authentic memories, you have real human responses. Wouldn't you agree? Are they all constructed, or do you ever use ones that are real? It's illegal to use real memories, officer. How can you tell the difference? Can you tell us something really happened? They all think it's about more detail, but that's not how memory works. You recall with our feelings. Anything real should be a mess. 
So as you heard there, Ryan Reynolds in Blade Runner 2049, my number 10 and Matt's number 11 film of the 2010s. Uh, as I said, that wasn't intended to happen that way, but I just didn't want to split up the Blade Runner 2049 talk over two podcasts. So we have hit the end of part one. Come back in part two for my 9 through 1 and Matt's 10 through 1. Uh, very exciting uh, podcast that we just wrapped up here. Uh, so, you know... At, I don't think it's it's good for us to recap maybe all of it. You can go back and listen to it. But, uh, Matt, this was so fun to do part one with you. Let's just do a little quick outro before we go into our second part of this podcast. Yeah, th- this was stupendous. We've been waiting to do this for a while. Uh, there's nothing better uh, than talking about movies that you love, and, and these are the movies that we love the most. So uh, this was absolutely stupendous. So, yeah, definitely keep your eyes peeled for part two. That will be coming out very shortly if you want to see the conclusion to uh, this great list that we've got going. So yeah, uh, come back very soon for that. You can hit us up on social media at Twisted Mug Media on Twitter and Instagram. Our email is twistedmugmedia at gmail.com. Email us your top 25 of the decade. We'd love to hear it. Um, yeah, come back and listen to our, all of our other shows on the on the feed. We have the CTP Movie Journal here, obviously, which is a spinoff of the CTP Proper, which is our flagship show. We also, also have Back in Style, where me and Matt talk about Twin Peaks with Logan, who is a Twin Peaks veteran as he guides us through there. We have Twisted Mug Mysteries. A uh, new episode just came out about all things spooky and occult there. We have Stop Wait What, which is our improv comedy advice show. We have The Octo Island, our Star Wars podcast, and we also have I Might Play That, which is our video game podcast. Um, am I missing any? I think, that, I think, I that's, think that's everything, yeah. Alright, so uh, come back for part two for this, and come back for all of our great content on this feed. Um, so yeah, I'm Ryan. I'm Matthew. And we'll talk to you next time. See you guys. See you.